We are twin brothers who grew up Atari, or as we call it, in the vertical blank. Technically, the vertical blank is the space between the last line of the current frame and the first line of the next, where off-screen calculations create a cathode ray tube display. It exists, literally, between the lines, invisible, yet all-seeing, in a void where magic occurs that is never seen, only experienced. It is the figurative location of our existential longing for the past and attempts to bridge it to the present and the future. The vertical blank is an omniscient force containing the nuances that make our nostalgia a reality. It's the transcendental location that holds our best memories, biggest joys, greatest fears, and our most terrible losses. You've been warned. You can stop this tape now and turn around. For once you've entered, there may be no escape. All the scan lines have been written. It's time to enter the vertical blank. Hey, Jeff, I got a question for you. What's that, Steve? My question for you is this. It's a philosophical question from the 80s. From the 80s, okay. This is a question from when our two worlds collided. You know what those two worlds were? Um, I can guess. Atari and rock and roll. Atari and rock and roll. Two worlds colliding in the year 1987. Yes, I think I know what you're talking about. And here's the question I'm going to ask you, Jeff. Did Atari ruin our favorite new wave punk rock and roll band? That's a great question, Steve. Let's find out. Do you know what I'm talking about? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm talking about this song right here. The uninitiated, that is, Rain in the Summertime by the Welsh New Wave, was punk, but not uh, not according to that song, 80s rock band, still going on today, The Alarm. Could we quickly play a tune from before that, so we could yeah. hear what they so sound this like was, before so, so here's Atari the ruined them? <laughs> so here's the thing, The Alarm used to be, when they first started, um, they made up their own sound. Their own sound. They they took apart acoustic guitars and put cheap pickups in them to make a bone rattling acoustic guitar sound that was amplified. This is before you could get 
Nowadays, you can get amplified acoustic guitars from, like, Sam Ash. But this is before you could actually do that. And actually, they're not just amplified. It was because the cheap pickups vibrated in a way that made the, the sound... Yeah, they, had ele- they had electric guitar pickups on it. Electric guitar pickups and acoustic guitar. So here's a medley of what that sounded like. That's why we liked them so much. And that, to me, that sound right there, that's my youth. That's in my vertical blank, yeah. that sound right there. That is a life-affirming, analog sound. That's right the there. alarm. Now, that's, what 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 created... What transpired uh, to, to go from that to what we heard before? Well, um, now that I'm old, I, I do love the, the record and Rain in the Summertime. But, yeah, yeah, but this but is back for, in the 80s. But back in the 80s when I was a kid. This is back when you were a kid and you are, you're, okay, you're in the 80s, you're in high school. Your identity, identity is so tied to the rock bands that you like. This is different than it is now. I, I, mean, I don't know if there was another time when it was when your identities were so so stratified by the T-shirt you wore for the rock band. Right, exactly. Like. So, exactly. and there could have been, but I think it's in particular in the eighties, especially with MTV and the look you had to sport. You know, to and we, you know, we would somewhat try to look like the Alarm ourselves, right? With the at some point spiky hair, you might and, put a picture up or something yeah, like that. You're so identified with that band, and then the sound changes so drastically, you don't know what to do. Right? Exactly. I understand. I agree. So, and yo, what per- per- precipitated that sound change, Steve? The Atari ST computer, the Jackintosh, the Jackintosh, the Atari ST computer. 
made by Jack Tremiel's Atari after he bought them in 1984. It came out in late 1985, right? Late 1985. Or is it 80? Oh, but we didn't get... It came get, out in late 1985. Right, we didn't get one until 87. It took, a, it took a year and a few months for us to get an ST. Yeah, we went... We sold our Atari 800. We invested. We sold and reinvested the money from our Atari 800 into an Atari ST computer. Right. And to Manny from Wilmington. Manny, that's who we sold. Manny from Wilmington, to. California. If you're around anywhere, I want my Atari disc back. <laughs> we'll talk about that exactly. <laughs> so we invested that in an Atari ST computer, and I think you had something very interesting to say about the interface on the Atari ST. So let's go to that right now. From the little blue desktop to the little green desktop. On a cloudy January 23rd, 1987, Steve and I purchased an Atari 520ST with an external disk drive, a high-res monochrome monitor, a mouse, a USA language disk, user manual, and box of 10 3.5-inch discs, all from the back of a pickup truck in a place called Orange, California. When we got home, we waited until the next day our twin 17th birthday, to carefully unpack and piece together the machine that would change our computing lives and future careers. It all plugged into our 13-inch color TV, along with our Atari 7800, to make a beautiful computer gaming workstation. Up until this time, our home computer had been an Atari 800 and 810 disk drive. Purchased in 1983, this beautiful machine by Atari Inc. under Warner Brothers was an elegantly designed piece of consumer hardware with ahead of its time gaming chips and a disk operating system named DOS well before Microsoft used the term. The version of DOS that we had was 2.0. This allowed the user to go into a full-featured, blue-and-white, 300 by 192 screen and see the contents of disks, copy, format, and do other disk operating commands with a beautiful blue full-screen menu on white with white text. This was akin to a blue DOS menu, or desktop, or little blue desktop, for lack of a better term. Everything in this DOS menu was typed from the keyboard using menu letters representing commands. For example, to get a directory from disk 1, you would type A from the menu, then, when prompted, D1 colon star dot star, and it would list all of the files on drive 1. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It was organized and beautiful. I had never seen anything like it on any other 8-bit computer that I'd used before. You could do everything in this menu that you would need to do with a disk. It was slick and fast with a, and a great introduction to computers for a couple 13-year-olds. For three full years, this was our computer education center. The Atari 800 810 disk drive with beautiful blue screen and white text coupled with a basic cartridge put us at the forefront of the computer age in the early 80s. Add in the Vokes modem, a 300 BPS modem that cost under $100, a printer, an 810 interface that allowed all sorts of peripherals to be connected, and you had the makings of a modern computer workstation and super game console. 
mixed into a single unit. It was great. Then, Atari died. Well, sort of. We went from being able to find games, books, and software for our beloved machine one month to finding bare shelves in local shops over the next few until the machine was just an afterthought to the Apple and Commodore 64. Atari had been sold to Jack Trammell. We made a plan, though, and that plan was to get one of the new Atari 520ST computers. With little cash to our names, this would mean selling off our beloved Atari 8-bitter to collect enough money to pay the $599 plus tax to get the ST. We did it, though. We made the leap with a little birthday money and the help of a car ride about 40 miles south to pick up the 16-bit Atari Wonder Machine from the same proprietor who would one year later open Computer Games Plus the best Atari ST and Amiga import shop in Southern California. Turning on the 520ST for the first time was an incredible experience. The machine booted into a beautiful green, white, and black 320 by 200 interface called GEM that used windows and folders very similar to a Macintosh. It was a masterpiece made by Motorola to compete with the forthcoming Microsoft Windows. It was the little green desktop. When this machine booted up, you saw two white drives on a green background and four drop-down menus at the top. If there was a disk in drive A, its contents would open up and we'd be displayed on the screen in a window. This window to the disk contents had controls that are very similar to modern operating systems today, with the ability to make the window full screen, close it, resize it, and use scroll bars to maneuver around the viewable portion of the disk content. It could have subfolders and bootable programs and documents that could be read, and desk accessories such as calculators, and much, much more, all accessed with a two-button mouse and a pointer hovering over the contents of the screen. Most Atari ST business and programming software worked directly in GEM with its desk, file, and view option menus at the top that could be changed by the programmer based on what the program needed. This computer came packaged with a USA language disk, a pretty nice version of BASIC, the logo programming language, and Neochrome, a paint program that still has a file type that is in use today. The ST was a brand new world. At its best, it could produce a 320 by 200 screen with 16 colors and multiple software sprites. An instantaneous hardware memory pointer made screen swapping for the programmer breeze, and playback of sound and music samples didn't halt the CPU. The screen was fully bitmapped in 8-bit color, so it took a full 32K of memory and a full 64K, more than most 8-bit machines had in total, to define two swappable screens that could be used to make machine language scrolling, sprite-laden games. To define a screen in each pixel, not just each line or each 8x8 block, you could have one of any of the 16 predefined colors in the 512 color palette. So to us, at its worst, it was a very colorful version of an 8-bit game computer. Games that mimic the best 8-bit games could be made with ease but it was the forthcoming 16-bit releases, such as Dungeon Master and Kickoff 2, that would cement this machine as the only one we needed to have 
and had us packing up our 7800 and Sega Master System with no need for them any longer. When the best developers found the machine and focused on pushing it and the little green desktop to its limits, it came close to the power of 16-bit consoles and computers that had predefined game hardware and chips. All of this in a simple machine made to be more of a business computer slayer than a games machine player. It had its quirks, but we loved it. Some of the very best early games really put their 8-bit brethren to shame. One of the first we purchased at a local shop was called Ball, B-A-A-L, released by Psygnosis in 1988. This early game used everything in the ST's interface and arsenal that we longed for when watching friends play their 8-bit NES machines. But it was on a crystal clear 320 by 200 fully bitmap scrolling screen. The graphics were better, the digitized sound was superb, and it made full use of the joystick or keyboard interface that a modern computer game or system should have. Other early games adopted the mouse as the input of choice, such as Better Dead Than Alien, released in 1987 by Electra Software. This game is so early in the ST's life that few people even know it exists. After playing these early ST games and using software such as GFA Basic on the new Little Green Desktop, we were hooked in the new 16-bit machine and especially the new mouse-driven human-computer interfaces became the standard, besting even the elegant Atari 8-bit DOS interface and letting us start computing in the new world of 16-bit wonder machines. What was interesting about the ST that your story did not talk about is the fact that it had MIDI ports built in. Now, there's, I guess there's some question about why the Atari ST had MIDI ports, but MIDI ports were designed for musical, electronic musical instruments to be able to be plugged in and for to be software controlled, the Atari ST. Yeah, sequenced and software controlled. And so what was interesting was the Atari ST at the time, because of those MIDI ports, became the cheapest piece of equipment you could buy to seek to to create drum patterns and sequence records digitally. And it's not just drum patterns, but... It, but, but yeah, yeah, a lot of people edited their drums. Mostly it was, yeah, drum, yeah. A, lot, a lot of drum patterns, a lot of other sequencing, because you could actually sequence the MIDI and the tracks together and actually move them so that they were in time. Hey boys, please at least Google and explain what some of these things are that you are talking about. MIDI is an acronym that stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It's a way to connect devices that make and control sound, such as synthesizers, samplers, and computers, so that they can communicate with each other, using MIDI messages. The Atari ST was one of the first low-cost computers to have a MIDI interface tied directly onto the motherboard. So it was fast. You kids bore me. Now back to learning my maths and then around a fortnight. I first need tea and digestives. My rider specifically said orange zincture tea. But one of you nerdliners got orange rose zincture. Those are not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. Oh dearie me. Dearie dearie me. 
happen. And I think the biggest piece of software that people use named Cubase that started with there are other things there are later, lots of different but I think that was the pioneering one, and allowed people that that had had been used to um, using very difficult. Uh, very difficult to manipulate sequencers to just get on and edit the drum patterns and the sequences on the computer, and it was huge. It, it didn't. Re- this wasn't in the home, right? This was in recording studios. Started showing up, I think, in '86 or '87, and by the mid '90s, it, apparently, almost every recording studio in the world had um, an Atari ST. To, to do MIDI sequencing. Now, some of them were being re- replaced by more expensive computers and more sophisticated, but the fact is it was so cheap that the guy down the street who opened his recording studio could have a, an a, ST. A, an and a ST lot of people sequence. were asking, does your recording studio have an ST? And the or reason, have an Atari. Have an Atari. They didn't really know. Atari became synonymous with... In certain circles, In right. certain circles, certain musician circles, with being able to have um, drum editing and sequencing. Right. And they would ask this because, why would they ask it? They didn't know the technicals. All they knew was it was fast. It was fast and efficient. Efficient. Yeah, so so what we learned from our research was that apparently because the MIDI ports were connected directly to the motherboard on the Atari ST, there was a really low latency. Timing in music is everything. It's everything, right? Well, timing in pitch. I mean, let's put it that way. Let's just be fair. Atari was so good at timing that people could rely on it. In fact, apparently there's even people to this day who still use Ataris because the time, they're so efficient with using the ST and the timing. Not a lot of people, but some people still do simply because it's kind of like, you know, when you'll go, you'll see a band record with like a big bass amp from, you know, the 70s. Right. It's like the Atari ST, to them, is the equivalent of that bass amp. It gets the sound that they want, and they know how to use it. And the timing can be is akin to part of my my uh, little discussion about interfaces on the ST, my esoteric discussion, when I mentioned that there was a, a Karen Hawken had hooked up an Atari ST and an Amiga together, and they were racing Sunk Car Racer together, and the ST was faster. Now, ST was faster because, one, it was clocked a little faster, but... The ST, in general, to do math and to do timing on MIDI was faster. You could use an Amiga if you plugged in a MIDI board to it, but it wasn't tied directly to, to the, the motherboard. motherboard. Yeah. You could do it with a Macintosh. It wasn't tied to the motherboard. This is another interface to the machine where, and is literal interface to the machine, where the ST got it right, along right. with the two-button mouse, along with some of the other things that I was mentioning. They, and they might have got it right by accident. We're not. I, we haven't really been able to find out why the MIDI ports were put there, but it didn't matter. It made it an important piece of computer and musical history. Is the Atari ten five twenty and ten forty? Jack Tramiel had had two more million dollars that he could have just spent on buying a, buying the Amiga Corporation. We'd be talking about the Atari Amiga anyway. So right. this is all. These are all subjective. But just to shift gears for a sec, you talked about the interface to the Atari ST, but there was another interface that. We were just starting to get used to at that time. Yes. And here's a little piece that I recorded about that. Jeff talked about the interface on the computer, but I want to talk about a different interface. The interface to our music. For most of our lives up until 1987, Jeff and I bought LPs, like everybody else. Long playing vinyl records, huge artwork. Take them out of the package, put them on the stereo. You listen 
as you read the lyrics on the dust jacket. But sometime in 1987, Jeff and I got a new Emerson dual cassette deck stereo from Target where he was working at the beginning of the year. And all of a sudden, the interface to our music changed completely. No longer did we buy an album at the store, gingerly place it on to the turntable, lift up the needle, and drop it down ever so slightly. Then sit back, not move, and listen to the record. Because you didn't want to jump up and down as it would make it skip. No, now we could buy a cassette and we could stick it into the cassette deck, play it loud, and jump up all around because the cassettes wouldn't skip. Our interface had changed. And with that interface came another amazing option. With a dual cassette deck, you could easily record from one tape to the other. You could also record records, but it was much clumsier. But with a dual cassette deck, you could queue up one song and start recording on the other almost instantly. And thus, our mixtapes were born. The interface to our music was new. It was interactive. We could create. It was a little bit like getting a computer for the first time. We could interact with the computer and we could write soft. And with the dual cassette deck, you could interact and you could make your own music the way you wanted it to sound in the order that you wanted it to play in. And that's why that year, after all the years of buying records from my favorite band, The Alarm, as LPs, we went and bought their record, released in 1987, I, The Hurricane, on a cassette. And I remember taking that cassette home and opening it up and wanting to read the lyrics just like we would on the dust jacket that we had for the album Decoration and the album Strength. But there were no lyrics inside the cassette. In fact, all the cassette contained was the names of the songs and a city name, which I found out later was the city that the song was created in or written in. I'd already heard the first song on the album, Rain in the Summertime, and I was disappointed. But some of the other songs were pretty good. But what it allowed me to do, this new interface with my cassettes and my dual cassette deck, was record my favorite songs from the record and just listen to those. And so instead of ever having to listen to the songs I didn't like, the songs One Step Closer to Home, Shelter, and Rescue Me were played over and over and over on the custom dub cassette I made using my new cassette tape interface. I was now in control. And much like when we first played Asteroids and first got our computer, that control was a feeling that is hard to describe now but then meant everything. Yeah, so my point there is that we started buying music on cassettes because Cassette. the, the interface was new and different as well. The Easier and cheaper, too. So for recording to us, and we didn't know anything about MIDI or recording or anything, recording to me was sticking my, buying the Alarm album, which, which Rain of the Summertime was on called Eye of the Hurricane, and putting it into our Emerson dual cassette deck, playing it, and actually have, being able to dub it on another cassette so we could make our own mixtapes. Because mixtapes were one of the most important things we, we could right, do. Right, you're driving around your car, you got a cassette deck, you want a mixtape. Right. So these two things combined in a very interesting way for us in 1987 was the, the electronic music and the sort of electronic way that we were now able to be interactive with our music. We could kind of do with records before, but now we're actually able to create something out of the songs that we heard. Now, Rain in the Summertime probably never made it on one of my mixtapes. I actually, I actually think I have a mixtape that does have it. In fact, um, but 
I would say that, you know, hidden behind all of this, the veneer of the rock and roll dudes and the and, and wanting to get the girls and stuff like that was us playing games on the Atari ST. <laughs> None of them knew about it, I don't think. Right? Oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> none of them. We didn't. We didn't make it well we known. We didn't make it well known, right? Oh. Exactly. After Rain the Summertime was recorded, there's a lot of other great songs on the Alarms Eye of the Hurricane record that I that I did like, and I, I grew to like the song too. One of the things that frustrated me about the album Eye of the Hurricane was that. In the fanzine for the alarm, like six months before, they kind of announced what their next record was going to be called. And I swear it was supposed to be called Electric Folklore. Yes, it was. And to me, Electric Folklore meant the combination of acoustic instruments and and electric in a way that like I really love the alarm. So when I heard this, it was it was kind of weird. So the next year, after this record came out, the alarm released a live record called Electric Folklore. And that had a live version of Rain in the Summertime that sounded like this. A little closer to to what we would have liked, what I would like at the time. But also, it had this curious statement inside the song Rescue Me that Mike Peters recorded that sounds like he sort of had second thoughts about this electronic recording that they right. did for Rain in the Summer. Search is everything, boys. And you say you actually ran the alarm.com website? I'm not convinced. You are mixing updates, songs and recordings here. 
the version of Rescue Me where Mike Peters quotes Woody Guthrie and then talks about music not sounding genuine anymore because of computers was actually recorded in Philadelphia April 16, 1988, about a month before the Electric Folklore album recording in Boston. So this is Steve, just breaking in for a sec to say that it was interesting that that speech that Mike Peters made in the middle of the Rescue Me song came about nine months after Rain in the Summertime came out. It was out, It was when Rescue Me was a single after Rain in the Summertime. The Alarm would never go back and do that same type of thing that they did in Rain in the Summertime. And in fact, their next record that came out was produced by Tony Visconti, and it was a complete return to acoustic and analog recording with old mixing desks and uh, and made a sound that sounded very, very earthy and original. It wasn't like the original alarm sound with the, the acoustic guitars with the pickups, but it was definitely a very unique acoustic electric rock sound like nothing I think that's ever come before or after. And that was the album Change. And I just wanted to play a couple little snippets of songs from Change here so you can hear what that sounded like when Tony Visconti got to the band after they did this experiment with Rain in the Summertime. understand the impact the Atari ST computer and its built-in MIDI interface had on the music industry. Here is an incomplete list of bands that purportedly used an Atari ST somewhere in the recording process. 808 State, Adolfson and Falk, Alan Holdsworth, Atari Teenage Riot, The Alarm, Barry Odmanson, 
Basement Jacks, The Berserkers, Bomb the Base, Cabaret Voltaire, Camouflage, Da Rude, Debbie Gibson, Depeche Mode, David Gershon, David Manson, Donnie Osmond, Dr. T, Eric Empire, Fatboy Slim, Fleetwood Mac, Frontline Assembly, Future Sound of London, Gary Newman, Genesis, House of Lords, In Excess, Jamiroquai, Jean Michael Jar, Luke Viber, Klaus Schultz, Kraftwerk, Leon Russell, Madonna, Michael Brooks, Michael Jackson, Mike Love, Mike and the Mechanics, Mike Oldenfield, Mike Paradinus, Nat Fowler, Moody Blues, Nicer Ebb, Orbital, Oscar Peterson, Paula Abdul, Per Martinson, The Pet Shop Boys, The Pointer Sisters, Queen, Sparks, Take That, Tangerine Dream, Torval and Dean, The Utah Saints, UK Hitmakers, Stock, Aiken, Waterman, White Town, and Yes. And there are many, many more. In some ways, it's easier to ask the question, who didn't use an Atari ST from the late 80s into the early 90s to record an album? Because they touched almost every professional band. And what did the Atari ST mean to musicians? According to Swedish techno artist Per Martinson, the Atari ST was for many years the main brain of the studio. It was the main piece of sequencing hardware for everybody at the time. Artist Nat Fowler has said this about the Atari ST. I think that it was a huge, crucial point in the automation of music. Remixes could be made easier and sugary, recycled pop could be made easier. Not all good things, but it was definitely a revolution. Now, the Alarm did go on to record with Tony Visconti, and I don't think they did any sort of drum sequencing and stuff for those records except for the for the demos. So there was a song called Change One that was completely sequenced on the Atari ST. Right, but that's Change and that was a demo. But Change One yes. was completely sequenced on the Atari ST, but that was probably the last one. We and play I, a little bit because that song's awesome. Okay, yeah, let's play a little bit of Change One right now. It is one, it is one of my favorite songs from that era. Even though it's sequenced on the Atari ST, it's a great, I this love is, it. So this, this is the electric the, folklore. This is where, the, this is where the two things actually combine right, exactly. in a way that I like. This is what it should have sounded. If I'm going to make a song on my Atari ST with a rock band, this is what it's going to sound it like. It should sound like this. <laughs> like to say is after hearing that i love that still love that song now some of the music on equals the new alarm record combines digital and acoustic and electric and electric in a way that i think could have never been done before but i think it's a perfect mix and here's some examples of that No 
Someone dies in the desert Someone cries on the streets While my keyboard flashes With a text and a tweet My night turns to day And my day turns to night It's all superstition Rips you all as actually interviewed Mike Peters, the uh, lead vocalist for The Alarm, and The Alarm are still going today, and they're touring right now. But we caught up with Mike on the phone in Germany back in July, early July. Right. Actually, I think it was June. I take it back. We caught up with Mike in late June, and we asked him about using the Atari ST to record Rain in the Summertime, and this is what he had to say. When we're reading about the Tony Visconti um, sessions, and since Steve and I were big Atari ST users back in the day, we were wondering who brought the Atari ST in to start working on um, Change, and specifically the song Change 1, because Change 1 was definitely uh, programmed by somebody. um, I think you had mentioned that before, but do you you remember who started bringing the Atari and the sequencers into the studio and, and started working with them? Yeah, that it, that started on the Ivan Hurricane album. Oh, okay. It was um, John John Porter, the producer, brought the Atari into the recording environment of the Alarm, and um, he he programmed uh, Rain in the Summertime uh, in his producer suite. Uh, you know, because uh, we were working in a residential studio, and he, he had a, a suite in the in the studio, and so he set up his Atari in his room. And, and at night, when we finished recording, or in the morning before we started, he he do some preparation work as a producer, and he, he mapped out um, "Rain in the Summertime" from the the one take of us playing it in the rehearsal room, and and we played it. In a, the tape was playing it in the rehearsal room as uh, was um, Nigel was playing a drum machine, and and it was a Jim. Go back to the Strength album for that. That's Jimmy Ivey when he did do pre-production work with us suggested that Eddie and I might benefit as songwriters from playing along with a drum machine uh, rather than just strumming acoustic guitars in the, in the traditional way and and so we, we got a drum machine on his, his advice and, and Nigel actually became the programmer of the band <laughs> he took a real interest in um, the, 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 the Atari with, with, with John Porter he took a real interest in, in drum machine and, um, and and worked extensively at getting to know how those how those the electronic sides of it worked. And, and when we when we did the change album, um, again we worked we, we tried to work a set of demos up as a band completely as a band, but it it, it didn't quite go anywhere. And then and then we went back to basics and started working on just the songs that Eddie and I would write, and then. 
we'd lay down an acoustic version of the song. Nigel would take it away and write the drum machine part on, on the drum machine, and then we'd do the demo on, on, of the song with um, Nigel's programmed drums. And, and the same to then when we finished the song, Dave would come in at night and work on his songs for a change, and, uh, and Nigel would do the same for his. So, so Nigel became the, the drum programmer. And, uh, and I think that was partly because when we were doing Eye of the Hurricane, uh, quite a lot of that album ended up being programmed on Lin Drums by John Porter, because that, he, that's how he worked a lot with the Smiths, How Soon Is Now was produced with a Lin Drum, right. an electronic drum machine, and he programmed the drum field in it. And, and uh, Nigel, you know, embraced that, uh, 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 and um, wanted to, to get on top of it, and he, so he did, you know, some of the drums are programmed, and some, and then he play live on the top, like over top. Rain in the summertime, it's like it's like having two drummers, you know. And uh, and and so he, he became really good at the programming the drums. And then when we did the album for live in the studio uh, with Tony Visconti, it, all the drums were live. There was no uh, Atari's inside <laughs> for the main album. But when we were mixing the record. Um, I, I'd written the, all those lyrics that became on the record sleeve, the, the Change One lyrics. And, and, uh, and, and, and I think there's somewhere there's possible talk of maybe doing a second Change album based around that song. And, that was a great song. <laughs> so we sort of did a demo of Change One uh, at the Good Earth Studios where we'd recorded 68 Guns and all that, where, where we were mixing it, the Change album. And uh, Dave came in and played guitar, but we programmed the drums with electronic bass and uh, Nigel's drums. He, he did the whole thing on the Atari, and uh, and then we just let, let Dave loose on the guitars. And uh, you know, uh, some of his finest ever guitar work, is, in my opinion, is on that track. It sounds great. I remember great things I remember at the time that Changed album came out you two had come out with their sort of different sounding record and I cannot remember the name of it and the reviewers are saying wow it's so hard and, like hard edge and I'm all obviously you haven't heard Change 1 like anyway um, but um, one other and that, thank you yeah, for I that think, I, I, think, I think we all wish that we'd recorded it with Nigel's real drums because uh, it would have been it was it was almost a bit Led Zeppelin in it, you know, and me the Who was something really great about it. There I, is, I certainly loved it. There's something that you will and, need uh, to um, go back and and refine with that song someday. Something, but um, you know, we're, well, the anniversary is coming up. Next yeah, year. exactly. I'm sure we'll get. I'll have a look at that. You know, but um, yeah, well, I think uh, at the first time we really encountered that sort of drum technology was when the champ has just begun, and but we all hated that, and we all fought and fought against that but you, you can't hold back the tide forever it was just the way music was going and uh, you know mixing desks becoming computerised and um, and eventually you have to learn how to control it before it controls you and and, and learn how to work it creatively and, and that, that's what we did you know as, as the band developed we each took on roles um, and you know that was Nigel's role to really take on the technology and he did a great job he became really good at that kind of thing um, I know I, so far I mean now you have to use Pro Tools for everything basically to make sure you have a um, 
<laughs> a decent sounding record. Everyone's compressing everything, and you, but it's good. I mean, I don't. I'm not. A, I'm not afraid. Was never afraid of technology. Neither were you, because you were always a sort of a computer guy before you decided to be a rock star. Yeah. Now, now, now when you make records, it's, it's about getting the balance with the analog for the sounds and the warmth and the humanity, and then combining that with the the freedom that digital offers you where you can you know change your mind in the process and it's not the end of the world you can you know you can reconfigure a track to suit your generation as it's developing through the recording it's a little bit like when you're writing a letter to somebody on the computer and you can cut and paste right and actually express yourself clearer than when it's hand painted you know you're writing it out longhand you can <laughs> okay, boys. Did the Atari SD actually ruin your favorite little rock and roll band? Not commercially at least. Before the use of the Atari SD for sequencing, purely analog songs like 68 Guns, Strength and Spirit of 76 all were in the Billboard Charts Top 40 USA mainstream rock tracks at numbers 39, 12, and 29 respectively. With strength barely scraping the lower half of the Hot 100 singles chart at position 61. In the United Kingdom, 68 Guns, Where Were You Hiding When The Storm Broke, Absolute Reality, Strength and Spirit of 76 were all in the top 40 with 68 Guns speaking at position 17. After the use of the SD to sequence in the studio, the singles Rain in the Summertime, Presence of Love, Sold Me Down the River, Devolution Working Man's Blues, Love Don't Come Easy, The Road and Draw all made it into the Billboard Charts Top 40 USA Mainstream Rock Tracks in the USA, with Rain in the Summertime, yes, the very song you think might have ruined your little band, peaking at number 6 and Sold Me Down the River peaking at number 2. Sold Me Down the River also had the highest Hot 100 position for the band at number 50. In the UK, Rain in the Summertime hit position 18 on the top 40 singles charts, with a whole list of other singles also in the top 40. So, the Atari ST and the Alarm actually peaked commercially at about the same time. Now, that's the commercial success story here boys. Ta. Ta. I'm off to play Tempest 4000 on a real machine, not an old wiggly digit like you are discussing. So anyway, Jeff, the question I asked you before, did Atari ruin our favorite rock and roll band? Okay, the answer is no, because they're still around making music that I like. But at the time, I was a little put off by that record and that sound. 
So, you know, me, I had just picked up the Stiff Little Fingers record for the first time, right? Stiff Little Fingers had all the best, and I hadn't heard their singles because we're here in the U.S., they didn't get there. And that was all out punk, and rock, punk rock, and in the Alarms fanzine, it said the first members of the Alarm fan club were, were Stiff, Stiff Little, Little Fingers. fingers. So you're, like, you're like, how come they, how did they abandon their way? How did they lose their way in this way? Well, Stiff Little Fingers did have records later along the way that, were, um, that weren't as punk rock, but... In a way, Eye of the Hurricane, and especially that record at that time, being Rain of Summertime, did kind of put me off a little bit. Right, but did they ruin them? I think here's my thing. Probably every band that recorded in some way was sequenced or uh, on an Atari ST from 1987, from 1987 to 1997. They probably could have never gotten away from it. If they so, were in a professional recording studio. Right, in a professional yeah. recording studio. But here's what I want to say. The Alarm for their time brought acoustic guitars back into punk rock and into new wave. They influenced everyone from U2 to Green Day. These days, they hardly get the credit for it. Right. Likewise, Atari created the game industry and revolutionized recording with media at the same time. But they almost get no credit for it either. Those two things, Atari and the alarm, take up the most space in my vertical blank. Mine too. Exactly. Was it special? Did it ruin the band? Did it... Probably not. Why not? The fact that the two crossed paths on that fateful day in 1987, when our two worlds collided, well, it was simply inevitable. Into the vertical blank. Okay, just a note. Last time we said this episode would be our first book club episode. Well, as you can see, it's not. That'll come on our next episode. It's dangerous for us here at Into the Vertical Blank to announce what we're going to do next time, because honestly, we don't know how much time we're going to have to do anything these days. As always, you can reach us on Twitter. Jeff is 8BitRocket. The number 8, B-I-T-R-O-C-K-E-T. I... I'm Fulton Bot, F-U-L-T-O-N-B-O-T. You can reach the podcast itself at Atari under VB under pod. You can also reach us on Facebook at Into the Vertical Blank and our website, 8bitrocket.com. That's the number 8, B-I-T-R-O-C-K-E-T dot com. One more thing. Jeff and I produce the official podcast for the band The Alarm, called Never Let the Fires Die. If you're interested, check it out on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, as Emily alluded to, we both ran the official Alarm website from 1996 through 2011, and we're still involved in that sometimes as well. Now, here is a bumper for a podcast we think you should check out. Everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which were mostly released only in the UK. 
But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Thanks to the Tardage Forums, Sounds on Sounds Forum, www.musictech.net, Matt Anis, and dailyredbullmusicacademy.com, and Stuff TV. Also, I would be remiss not to mention Ferg. As always, thanks to Ferg for the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, and for always putting out quality product and giving us a level to strive to. Ferg also is a huge appreciator of music. He talks about music, has music in his podcast, even sometimes just does an episode about the Beatles. Sometimes he just has Minutemen songs in the middle of his episodes. Ferg is a great, great, great inspiration for all podcasters, especially Atari podcasters. Into the Virgo Black. Next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V blank ending.